Watch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch podcast, we're going to take a break from our usual format of discussing Beef Watch newsletter articles. Today's Beef Watch podcast is a producer's perspective, and I'm joined by James Sewell, who's the manager at the TA Ranch located near Saratoga, Wyoming. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, hi, Aaron. Glad to be here. Uh, appreciate the chance to share some perspectives on what we do here at the TA and maybe some things that might be different than other producers might do. Yeah, I appreciate this. We talk about this. One of the things I'd like to talk about today is just kind of mental models or approaches to management of a ranch. And you mentioned you're on the TA there. So tell us just a little more about yourself, your background and and your role there now at the TA ranch. Yeah. So uh, I've been at the TA, been the manager here coming on 11 years now. Grew up here in this county, went to high school here, went to University of Wyoming, and then I worked with Deseret Ranches mostly in Utah and Florida for about 10 years, uh, different roles before coming here. Um, so this ranch has been owned by the same family for about 45 years. When I got here, uh, it was very traditional in the sense of a, of a high mountain ranch. You know, we're about 7,000 feet elevation. We run on a combination of deeded irrigated meadows, BLM permits, a little bit of forest land, lease land, uh, but but very normal for this part of Wyoming and really a lot of the West. They were raising their own cattle, putting up their own hay, had all the equipment, basically did everything themselves. Uh, pretty big staffing requirement in to do that. Uh, a lot of seasonal people to do the irrigation, do the haying, uh, help feed in the winter, those types of things. So I think when I got here uh, in April of 2012, there was 16 people on the payroll for uh, about a 3,000 cow ranch at that time. So a lot of people, and then all those people had to have equipment, vehicles, tractors, feed wagons. And the ranch was putting up and feeding about 8,000 ton of hay a year. Um, weren't selling any hay, just strictly selling calves on the videos through Superior. That was kind of where we started. Pretty traditional, you know, sizable ranch, obviously, but a lot of people involved. Uh, one of the differences, we are owned by a family that does not live on the ranch. And so all of our employees and time and labor is hired staff, including me as the manager. So we really don't have any free labor, family labor, or whatever that gets donated basically to, to the operation. So we have to pay for everything we do. You took over management of the ranch. What was the calving season then? What did that look like? Yeah. So they would, we would start calving heifers just like most people do kind of mid March, uh, calve them for 45 or so days. Cows would start about two weeks after the heifers in April, early May, mostly calving in the meadows. Uh, they weren't really tagging those commercial cows. You know, they were pretty big herds, maybe 800 head, and one guy was feeding them, and then doctor and scours is needed or whatever. So they didn't really have time to tag them. So we'd probably have the heifer herd and maybe three big herds of cows uh, in the meadows. And then it was a rush to kind of get them out of the meadows, get the calves branded, get the irrigation water turned on, fences gone around you know spring was kind of a mad dash and at that time we were kind of double staffed because you had a cowboy crew taking care of feeding and caring for the cows and then you kind of had a farm or irrigation crew uh, dragging meadows and getting ditches turned on and things like that so we, we were kind of somewhat double staffed you know we had a kind of a farm crew and a, a ranch crew so up here we were about seven thousand feet elevation spring does not come very early 
one of the first things we did was switch the whole cow herd to May calving cows as opposed to April. And and we cab out in the sagebrush now, uh, May and June and some in July. That way those cows can be out grazing. We don't have to feed them. The cowboys really spend most of their time irrigating. So we kind of eliminate the duplication of labor. Uh, we don't have a farm crew and cattle crew separate anymore. We just have employees. And while the cows are out calving in May and June in the sagebrush, most of us spend most of our time with the flood irrigation. Our labor with the cow herd is just checking water, fencing, and moving them every couple of weeks. By getting out of the feed row and away from the buildings and into bigger pastures, you know, we obviously don't go out and tag calves. We don't feed during calving. We have no issues with scours. We don't doctor any calves, basically. A few at branding, but nothing in the spring. Um, and, and to be able to do that, to greatly shrink our labor requirements, we stopped keeping heifers. So now we buy other people's later calving, mostly June calving cows that, that fit our program, black cows. Try to buy middle-aged four to eight-year-old cows that kind of fit our program. And then... Most of them, since they calve in June, they get fat by the time they calve and they move back into our May cycle. So some of the things we've changed in terms of buying cows, not calving heifers, calving later, all those are really focused around shrinking the labor pool. So now we have four full-time people related to cattle instead of, and, and then we get a couple seasonal people. So we might, you say six in the busy time as opposed to 16. We also hired uh, a contractor to do the hay needs that we require. We have shrunk the amount we feed of our cows down to about a ton per cow-calf per year. So instead of feeding about 8,000 ton of hay, we're roughly 3,000 ton. We still feed some. We were feeding less than that, but we have issues with elk here and getting in our windrow stockpiled forage. And just when I look at Animal Days per acre, we, it's better to feed a little hay than no hay here, but we've shrunk it to about a third of what it used to be. And our staff is about a third of what it used to be. Uh, our machinery is about a third of what it used to be. However, our cow herd is basically the same. Our sales of calves are basically the same. Our calving uh, weaning weights really haven't changed. One of the reasons that happened when we switched to make calving, they had been weaning them, but not really getting any post weaning gain on the calves, not doing a great job there. And so we just improved the nutrition and we didn't lose any post-weaning gain or calf weight by losing a month of life of the calf. We shoot for about a 430 pound steer calf in November, December, and maybe a 400, 415 pound heifer. For, for us, that's a really good market. It's a really sought after product. Most of those will go to California grass, to wheat pasture in the, in Texas panhandle or to corn stalk aftermath that's kind of redrilled with rye or fritty kale or something there in Nebraska where you're at. So very flexible. We've tr we've been weaning those calves so they can just be turned out and ready to go. And, you know, we are selling back in November, uh, what we were selling, 425-pound calves, would be what Torrington or Ogallala are selling 600-pound calves for right now. And people have put, you know, another three months worth of feed into them to get the same value. Part of that is that we're a large operation. We really size them up good. We obviously don't sell all the calves at one weight class. You know, we'll sell 360 pound steers, 430 pound steers, and 490 pound steers. 
you know, it's it's a bell curve distribution of how they weigh. And so we try to sell along that bell curve and then different weights really go to different people and then they can really get what they want instead of a hodgepodge. And our typically our prices are really good on the summer video sales. So when those calves come to weaning, are you backgrounding those? Or I guess do you had a post-weaning time frame where they're grazing some of your meadow aftermath. So you said they're ready to turn out. Are they kind of prepped to go then? Yeah. So they'll be on our hay meadow aftermath for the most part. If we wean them in September, October, if we're weaning the latest ones, if we're weaning November, by, by the time we get to late October, we're basically on hay. Uh, so our late November, December deliveries would be eating hay, but they're out in the meadows. They never really are in a lot. They're just either eating meadow aftermath or grass hay with uh, either DDG or cake for a protein energy supplement. The other thing it does by weaning early, I don't know that it really, because there's not that many light calves, you know, in the past we've sold some off the cow and realistically you don't get a premium for weaning. Uh, very little kind of depends if, if calf numbers are short, like we're coming into in the next few years, I think the weaning premium is going to be non-existent on those light calves. People just want them. They'll pay it, whatever. The the advantage to us is that instead of keeping our pears around those meadows and eating up all that regrowth, we kick them back out in the hills, uh, get them away from the buildings, get them away from the meadows. And those cows will put on weight between the time we wean and when fall comes cheaply with no supplement. And they go into the winter fatter. And then that means less supplement through the winter. Uh, probably half of our cow herd on one of our ranch that doesn't really have elk on it. We windrow graze, strip graze, just, uh, you know, a lot of people do that type of stuff, but swath it, rake it, but don't bale it and then separate it with string fence. So a lot of our best, our running age, prime alive cows, you know, we haven't fed them grass hay in three or four years, probably. Um, even this year where it's pretty snowed up, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we have, we'll feed a couple pounds alfalfa or right now DDG has been a cheaper price. For protein so we supplement with that but uh one of a couple of the things that does is one it's a lot cheaper to do that typically and also their labor requirements almost nothing right now with that ddg one guy's taking care of about 1200 cows down there he feeds in the morning three or four days a week we never start the tractor uh, even if we're feeding alfalfa we'd only start the tractor two days a week so our equipment use is is pretty minimal our labor requirements are pretty minimal so a, a different model here is there's four of us in the wintertime. I don't feed a ton, so it's mostly three guys feeding, you know, our cow herd. We feed maybe four days a week. Um, if we have to full feed, we'll double feed. We don't feed on weekends pretty much. We'll triple feed on Friday and let them be. Uh, we're pretty much done by noon every day, and then I let the guys go home, do other stuff. Sometimes they build saddles or tack or other things, you know, just having them here at the ranch just to spend time just cost us money. You know, they're either burning fuel or driving around their truck, putting miles on it. So we try to keep it pretty minimal in the wintertime. And we try to pretty well have weekends off. A lot of us have kids in sports or other interests. The summertime, you know, we'll have to probably irrigate on Saturday morning, but we don't do much of that on Sunday. One of the things since we hire employees, you know, they don't have to be here. And so we, we really have a reputation of a place that people get a good amount of we everybody gets two weeks of vacation a year and we expect them to be gone from the ranch uh, we pretty well get weekends off we provide health insurance internet stuff like that nice place to live but by doing so we try to get by with not a lot of people because that's expensive to have people and pay them sal good salary and benefits but i think our work schedule 
and the culture uh, of being respected and everybody having a job to do is what brings people, keeps people here, attracts people. We have minimal turnover. We try to hire married people and then that way they get involved in the school and the community and kids have activities and they're just part of the fabric of town. And they're also a lot less likely to leave if their kids really like school here. And uh, I don't think they're going to want to go work in a feedlot for maybe a little more money when they know they have to work, you know, weekends or every other weekend or ship at four in the morning. So it's a pretty attractive place, I think, for employees. And that, that's part of our key to be able to operate. We think quite a bit about that. So talk about the process a little bit. Obviously, when things came into where you are now, there's been some major shifts. As you think about the employees you have now, I mean, for some folks, you got the same guy irrigating is also stringing out polywire in the wintertime. For some folks, that's not something, I mean, they're not horseback doing that, right? And so I guess right. think as you talk about just the culture you've developed and you finding people to fit that culture, what's been the process of that? Yeah. So, you know, first we had a lot of people uh, when we started and a lot of those people were some were seasonal. And after that first year, I knew changes were coming. So we just didn't keep them on. Some of the people just didn't like the changes. Uh, they didn't like the idea that we weren't going to full feed cows all winter, that we were going to make the cows work a little bit. I did not come here thinking we were going to have the turnover level that we did, but really only one guy stuck it out for a while. The rest, after a couple of years, you know, they were, they were gone. Um, one of them, you know, we had kind of two mechanics at the time. One of them stayed several years and we kind of switched from doing all, all mechanicing to doing some mechanicing, but a lot more irrigating. And he was a real good irrigator. So it helped with that transition. It wasn't like a all in one year, get the staff down. Uh, the biggest thing was the second summer I was here, we hired a hay contractor uh, as opposed to doing it ourselves. So I sold a bunch of equipment and that allowed us to cut our seasonal staff quite a bit. That second spring I was here, we were still I didn't make the switch to May calving till the second summer, putting the bulls in. So we still had to calve in the spring, feed hay. So I still kind of had, had more staff to be able to irrigate and feed and take care of cows. So there was a couple years of transition to getting the staff level down to where it is now. So one of the interesting things is you mentioned that, you know, our guys, you have to irrigate, you have to fend, you have to be able to drive a tractor, you have to run a backhoe, a fixed ditches, light mechanic duties. Uh, it's pretty well an all around ranch hand versus, you know, a herdsman or a, just a cattle job. But on most ranches here, that's kind of expected. You know, the days of just being able to ride. Uh, we do ride a lot in the summer and the fall. So the cowboy part of them, you know, we we head and heel brand a bunch. Uh, we sometimes we use Norforks. We help a lot in the neighbor's brand. We trade a lot of help. So you know, we might go brand 5,000 calves between us and the neighbors. So there's a lot of branding to do. There's a lot of roping in the fall, you know, weaning. We ride through calves every day, uh, a lot of gathering cows in the fall. So kind of by the time we start shipping calves off November, December, even the guys that like to ride a lot, they're kind of about had a gut full of it, to be honest. And it starts getting cold and not so nice. And so they don't mind kind of getting in the tractor and feeding or supplementing or doing string fence. And by spring, they're really sick of that and they want to go irrigate or do something else. The thing about, I think, the seasonality of ag is about, in, in our situation, is about when you've got a gut full of the job that you're doing as an employee, it's the season changes and you do something else. And you do a bunch of that for a while and you kind of get sick of it and move on. 
I think that's one difference in ranching versus maybe like in a feed yard or something like that, that it really changes with the season. And I think that's kind of what allows, you know, most people, most people can do a job for a season. They might not want to do their least favorite job or the thing they don't really crave 12 months out of the year, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I think, and just having some seasonality, uh, there's some fresh things that are coming. And like you say, it's kind of keeps you, keeps you mentally fresh and looking forward to the next thing. I think so. Yeah, exactly. Cause our guys, you know, by, by spring, and, and we kind of feed together some in the winter. And so by spring, the guys are ready to irrigate. I mean, they're happy to be out on their four-wheelers getting around. The weather's nicer. They're by themselves without somebody that they're feeding with. We feed square bales. And so when we do feed, we don't have bale processors. So we have a, a tractor pulling a semi-trailer or a gooseneck trailer. So it takes two people to feed safely. Uh, and so they're kind of tired of being around somebody. Um, the one thing about feeding with those trailers as opposed to hay processors is there's very few moving parts. You know, you have to grease some bearings and stuff, but there's no hydraulics. There's no motors, chains, just way simpler, way cheaper. And then you can use them for other stuff in the summertime. So basically they're just flaking those squares off the back of that flatbed then. Is that how that's working? Yeah, how that works on those trailers. And, you know, those trailers are the same thing we used to stack hay in the summertime. So we can stack maybe 23 by four bales on them and take them to the yard. Our hay contractor can, or we can feed 10 to 14 at a time. So also when we're feeding a group, say it was 500 cows, you only need to take one load out there. And then all the cows have a chance as opposed to a bale bed or a, a little processor that you can only take two bales out at a time. Well, all the pig cows, you know, they're going to get the first bite out of every trip you take out there. Uh, the way we feed, that's not the case. And else to think about, and the way with either windrow grazing or if we double feed hay, number one, there's a lot of forage out there. So the less aggressive cows have a, they, they can get at full at least three or four days a week. And then a lot of times they, with the windrows, they eat more in the evening than in the morning, which is more natural. And so you have more rumination at night. And so I think it helps the cow stay a little warmer at night and deal with the cold. So there's, there is some benefit. I think it's more natural to the cow to, to graze in the afternoon. Human nature is to fire up the tractor at 7 a.m., get out there and feed. And if you're doing that every day, then the cows are kind of eating out of sync with what their natural tendency would be to do if they were grazing. And then they're kind of hollow at night and tend to be colder and standing by the fence in the morning and all that. We really don't see that. I guess talk a little bit about your hay contractor and and how that relationship works. And then also, how do they work with you on the windrowing and laying out that forge for the winter? So when we first got into this, we talked to a few hay contractors. Um, thing is, they all kind of had other jobs and different things and commitments. So we actually talked to some people that had done some other work for us that we liked and approached them about getting into the hay business. And, and they had young boys coming up that they wanted something to do in the summertime. Basically, they had plenty of work in the winter with other jobs, but they had kids and and they could see that they were going to have to do something to keep the kids busy and out of trouble, basically. And so we kind of came up, I came up with a figure of what I thought it would cost us to own the equipment, hire the labor in terms of depreciation, fuel, all that kind of stuff, and kind of help them get into it. And uh, we guaranteed them 3,500 tons the first two years. And then they took an agreement that we had to their bank so that they could get financed to get the equipment to get started. And I think it's been really good. The first couple of years, you know, they used our rake and tractor and swather. They had to have the baler. So we kind of, we kind of, we had all the equipment to start with. And so we transitioned into them 
owning the equipment. I don't think they actually bought any of our equipment. Um, we sold it locally or different ways and they bought different stuff. So it was, it was a couple year transition into them owning all the equipment. How we do it now is we pay per acre for the swathing and raking. And then if we choose to bail it, it's a certain amount per ton to bail it. And then if they stack it, they do use our tractors and wagons to stack. And then I just pay an hourly rate uh, for them, for their person to stack hay for us. And so it's, it's pretty well laid out. You know, we can kind of agree before the season uh, what the tonnage would be and what our expectations are. They've been doing it a long time now, so they know the meadows really well. Uh, I don't have to go help cut out the meadows. The first year or two I did. Now we don't have to, they, they just go do it. What percent of the forage crops put up in a bale versus just put in a windrow? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, we had got down to where we didn't bale a single bale of hay one year. Like we went way and we went from 8,000 ton to zero in a few years. And then our elk started hitting our windrows. Can't really store it year to year. And some other issues we went back to of that, let's say what used to be 8,000 ton. Now we put up. 3,000, 3,500 ton of hay. So 40%, maybe we bag 40% we windrow and 20% we probably just leave standing. Okay. The stuff that's kind of a ton per acre, the lower producing stuff. And one of the, they used to just hate everything because, so let me back up a step here, Aaron. Every ranch or business has a goal or a, a reason to exist. And it may or may not be what you think it is or written down or maybe a common understood goal or culture. Well, for this ranch, it was number of bales produced. That's all that was at. That was the main question from the owners. It was the driving force and they made every little piece of ground that you could even potentially think about making a bale out of, even if it was, you know, pretty wispy and would have been better just be grazed off. Well, and, and they took forever to hay, you know, they'd get done haying in September and start feeding in October. You know, there was hardly a break. And, and we focus more on bailing the most productive and the best stuff, windrowing kind of the next level down or at our one ranch that's better for windrowing and the least productive or the, the lighter stuff or anything that's gravelly or uh, the surface would be prone to wind erosion. We don't touch it. We just let the cows graze it, leave that residual forage just for, you know, for soil health reasons. Um, but really, you know, the driving mental goal for the whole ranch was how many bales you could produce, which... Number one, then all they had to do was make the bales lighter, which is inefficient, but then you get more bale count. It wasn't tons, it was number of bales. And then two, you know, if you bale it and you're not selling hay, you have to feed it back out. And so they just locked themselves into a high cost model of operation. Um, right now, as you know, I mean, you're snowed up in Nebraska, Wyoming snowed up, Colorado. It's been a tough couple of years. Hay prices are super high. Instead of maximizing our cow numbers, we've we've kind of cut back a little bit and been selling more hay. I mean, when I can sell hay off the ranch for two hundred to two hundred fifty dollars a ton, it's more profitable than running cows. Now, you know, you're not returning that to the soil, and I don't I don't think we want that to be our main business. But we have certainly kind of stepped out and shifted gears and taken advantage of some of that when hay's been super high. We're we're selling hay and running a few less cows right now. Yeah. Talk about, I guess, what it looks like in terms of management coming into those meadows in the fall. Do you come to that stuff you've stockpiled first and then transition to windrows? What does that look like? Yeah, um, we we typically do that, try to get that short stuff, depending on where it's at. Get some of that. We'll supplement while the pears, when we come back in with pears, uh, we may supplement 
a little bit. We may hit some windrows on a, the main ranch before we wean and then get the calves weaned. And then we'll go back and kind of kind of high grade through them the first time and then take dry cows back to clean them up and supplement a little more to do that. We also have a lot of kind of sub irrigated or creek bottom stuff with a lot of protection that we'll, we'll bring those pairs in in the fall where they can really tank up get a really good drink of water, get a good amount to eat. One of our issues that that we have when you stockpile feed or you have real productive meadows, like some of our flood irrigated meadows, then the quality tends to be pretty low. And a lot of people would say you get big temperature changes in September. Maybe it's in October in Western Nebraska where you start getting sick calves, respiratory issues with calves. And we get that some as well, some years worse than others. I think anytime we've really had issues with that, we can probably say we're behind on nutrition. Sometimes people come into those meadows, they don't want to have to start feeding. If we're aggressive and feed some DDG or some alfalfa to make sure we have plenty of protein to go along with that standing forage that's obviously declined into the fall, we tend to not have the respiratory issues. If you get behind on nutrition on those pairs prior to weaning, you'll just have sick calves. I mean, we can say year in, year out that it, it is pretty well nutrition-driven rather than the temperature just exacerbates it. So it doesn't really matter what vaccine program we have. If we get behind our nutrition fall on those pairs, we will have health issues. And the years when we stay up on it, keep mineral out, keep protein out good, we just hardly have a sick calf. So a lot of times people might blame things on the weather when really it's nutrition. Same thing, we don't treat for scours. You know, We don't have scours in the spring, it doesn't exist. But we're also out in maybe four section pastures. Cows are scattered out uh, on green grass. There's just cattle aren't concentrated on some feed row. I feel like when we have doctoring issues with cattle, it is management related to mostly nutrition or, you know, in the spring, it's having stuff together would cause scours that we just don't have a lot of that as long as we're doing a good job with the nutrition. So the pears come to the stockpiled feed, you're doing some supplementation there prior to weaning. And then uh, when you go to the windrows, yep. what does that look like? Yeah. So that would be, you know, with just mostly dry cows, depends on how much we regrowth we have. Uh, if there's good green underneath them, the cows are going to go through and eat that regrowth as long as there's not too much snow first, and then they'll go to those windrows. And a lot of times We'll move them to a fresh, we'll move them about every five days, let's say on average and separated by string fence. So we fence away from the water, let them, we don't usually back fence in the winter because we're not having regrowth. So fence away from the water. And a lot of times we will time the supplement such that the first few days in a pasture, they don't get supplement. We would supplement towards the end of a, I guess, paddock, not really pasture or cut or whatever. So that it helped, they clean up the windrows pretty well. So we'll kind of wait till they're close to out of feed, supplement some alfalfa or DDG and, and get them to finish the rest of it. And we, we push them pretty hard in terms of getting it cleaned up relative to what I've seen some other people do. So that last day or so is pretty low quality last two days. And so that's when we go ahead and supplement and they'll kind of go through the whole, the whole winter. That'll typically start in November on one ranch and kind of go through April, you know, every four or five days, seven days, whatever, depends on the layout of the pasture, they're moving to fresh windrows. Talk just a little bit about the logistics of your string fence, your temporary electric fence. How does that work? And and then also with that, I can see some people thinking, you got windrows in the field from, I, I guess, would they be laid down in August? What would be the time frame? Be Late July would be best, July or August. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're thinking some of those windrows are laying there eight, nine months. 
Yeah, from August until the last ones would be. We tried to have most of it gone very early April. So, yeah, they're there a long time. Um, you know, they it's kind of like loose hay. They, they store the quality pretty well. You know, we're in a nine-inch precip zone here, and so it helps that not to deteriorate as much as Nebraska would. We have to, you have to make sure the ground is nice and dry. Otherwise, they will kind of mildew and mold a little bit. So late July or early August is best for us. We don't typically get as much rain as you guys would. It stays cold and frozen through the winter, so it doesn't change much. You know, the quality of those windrows, when I've tested it, will be very similar to our grass hay. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't change a lot. Uh, logistically, putting out the string fence, you know, if, there's, if it's pretty open, there's not much snow, they'll do it with pickup. If there's a lot of snow, a lot of times they'll break a trail with a tractor and, or a backhoe and take the posts and the string in the backhoe bucket and kind of string it along that way. The guy that's good at it, he can he has a way that he has it set up, kind of pulls it, pulls the string with the backhoe, gets it tight, goes back and puts the posts in. Um, it's not a, you know, it's not a real big deal. You keep keep one thing about it, you know, you have to get out and do a little physical work as opposed to just driving a tractor. Same thing with feeding our square bales, but you know, it's probably better to get some exercise through the winter. If he's stringing, say, a quarter mile of fence or, a, you know, it probably only takes him a couple hours. Sometimes he'll have his kids go with him if it's the weekend and they can put posts in. It's not terrible hard. One thing that helps us a lot is most of those, the backbone fences are on an AC. Uh, and so we know they're good and hot as opposed to a battery charger. Um, we have better luck when we know we have power to the fence and it stays hot and we have to keep those backbones hot year round so that the deer and the antelope and stuff are used to them and they don't tear them up. Really the only time the cows get out is we get a huge wind. Maybe it'll blow up a little bit of hay and catch on that string fence. That's rare, but we'll get like an antelope herd or something in there that might move it around. But we, we really don't, have too much issues. A lot of times what he'll do is he'll make, there'll be two fences at a time, at least for a little bit. The, the second fence is made, then he rolls up the first fence so that the cows, there's a fence before he turns them out um, so they can't just run. One of the biggest things with windrows and probably the most important thing is to not disturb them, you know, not to dr drive cows through them a different time of year. If, when we've had elk in there, it creates a problem. As long as they're never disturbed and capped over, you know, it's kind of like a loose haystack, then we have very little waste. If uh, cows somehow break into it or get a big herd of elk in there and it opens that canopy up, then the snow and wind can drive in there and freeze those windrows down. And then we have problems eating them. But as long as we don't have disturbance, they're pretty good. It's funny if you get drifts and snow drifts and stuff, you'll see those cows will dig. They For some reason, there'll be windrows out in the open and they think the ones under the snow drifts are best invariably dig under the snowdrifts for windrows when there's windrows just open. But you really don't get iced over where you got to go break the crest for the cows to dig through, or that probably doesn't happen very often. No, not here. No, we don't really have that. Yeah. Real bad or deeper. I mean, you could break them open with a tractor or something, but we typically don't get much ice. So we don't get as much rain as Western Nebraska, central Nebraska, particularly. And we don't get a lot of ice. Like if I was in Nebraska, where I got more moisture, I would lean towards, you know, if I was trying to do windrows, more doing them, you know, kind of the last things, some of the last things I hay, and I'd try to probably use them earlier. Yeah. Um, just because your winters tend to be more open, tend to be warmer. The, the chance of rot or mildew is higher than here. So I just, I, I would use them quicker. It, but I think there's, you know, we still have a place. We use some here in the fall with pears on one ranch, partly so I can just get so many animal days in that pasture and I don't have to move that herd that fast.
Um, and I'll kind of high grade through that, like I said, with the pairs to keep their nutrition up, get the calves weaned, get them separated, and then I'll go back with the cows and clean up the remainder. So as you think about where the ranch is now, obviously you've made a lot of changes. I mean, a lot of uh, change to just the the model in terms of how the ranch is run. As you look at where you're at now, what are some things you're considering or evaluating in light of economics and, and just where things are at? You mentioned already a little bit, run a few less cows, sell a little more hay in light of what the value of hay is. But anything else you're considering, thinking through in your mind as you consider the times yeah. we're in? Right. I think that's a good question. One thing, you know, what we've done is to really overall simplify operations. So, you know, it's easier to transition between people. It, it's not you don't have to get so much right. What we do now is much simpler than what they were doing then. And and also then it's a little easier to change, adjust. If if we, let's say it's dry and we need to destock a little, well, we simply don't buy back cows as fast. It's not, we don't have to decide what to sell. We just keep what we got for the most part and just don't buy back. And so that's a lot simpler. Coming forward, you know, looking at it this year, you know, we had the conversation, well, should we buy some yearlings and run more yearlings? versus running as many cows. And uh, I think, you know, if we look over the next three or four years, you know, calf prices are going to be, should be really good. And so we want to still stay relatively stocked with cows. So we're not going all the way to selling a bunch of hay because if, if calf prices go up, that'll be more competitive. We don't want to necessarily, we've looked at buying yearlings, you know, and running more yearlings and less cows right now. But I really think over the next three to four years, you know, we're going to sell calves for more per head than we're paying for cows right now. And so I think cows are a good, a good buy, a good thing to be in over the next few years. Obviously, there'll be a lot of people that consider keeping more heifer calves. I mean, if you're already calving heifers, if you're calving 100 heifers, what's the difference in calving 125 or 150 labor-wise, you know? Yep. Probably not that much. You cash flow it, obviously, and pasture and all that, but you know, there's certainly going to be a demand for females. And, and that's another reason since we're buying females that I, I would be hesitant to not be reasonably stocked because if we had to catch up, they're going to be pretty expensive. Um, one thing I would mention about us buying cows, I don't go to Torrington or Ogallala and buy the nicest dispersal three and four year old cows available. I mean, that would be, that would not work in our model from a cash flow standpoint. Those are just too expensive. And we see too much fallout on those young cows anyways. Uh, I prefer to buy middle-aged cows that are later calving that we can move forward. So we're trying to add some value to what we buy. We buy most ranch direct. We buy a few at the sale, but most things are ranch direct. So I think if we didn't have the relationships we do in terms of being able to buy, you know, decent quality cows, ranch direct at a reasonable price, we would probably be keeping our own heifers as opposed to we, it would not work. Our model would not work to go, you know, buy sale topping cows at Torrington or Ogallala or somewhere like that. That, that is one thing to keep in mind. One of the negatives of buying cows in our situation, we will suffer a lower breed up by a few percentages. We will see a higher death loss by a percent or so. Uh, we'll see a lower calf crop percentage by a couple percent than if we had home raised cows. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And we, you know, kind of run the numbers and make sure we can deal with that. There's value. Our purchase cows are not as good as if we all had home raised cows from a, from a numbers standpoint. Now the calf crop that we produce and from marketing standpoint, they're just as good. Like I can sell the calves just as well because they all are one iron calves. They're home raised calves, no issues. 
but from uh you know you know strictly numbers results you know they're they we do take a hit and pretty great calf crop percentage and cow death loss so on the cows you're buying you mentioned you've got relationships with folks i assume many of those are april may calvers and these are kind of their tail ends is that kind of how that works right yep and so we you know those tend to be bigger operations that we deal with not not a hundred percent but they tend to be so that they would have one or two or three or whatever loads of the cows that are late calving for them and it's a nice it's a nice business for them because if they're calving in let's say march and april or april and may and then they'll leave the bulls in an extra 30 days uh, the vet will ultrasound those and say, hey, they're a late calver. They sell them to me somewhere between the price of a cull cow and what a top-end bred cow of the same age class would be at those sales. And, you know, they certainly make more money than marketing cull cows. Those cows tend to be a little thin, and so they're not going to sell great in the way up market. It's a nice it's a nice way for them to add some value to their ranch, some add some revenue with minimal cost. Uh, it's a good way for us to buy those cows at a reasonable price. So, as you think about the process and developing those relationships, did you go seek those out, or how did that come together? Yeah, I mean, it's usually me seeking those out. It's people I've met somewhere, people I've done business with in the past, people I've known as part of industry groups, um, and usually I've approached them. And a lot of times, they weren't selling those late calving cows. Uh, necessarily somewhere else. Sometimes they were, but a lot of times it was, you know, we kind of talked to them about getting in that business to try it, see what it would be like, suggesting that, you know, it, they try it. So yeah, they were, they were mostly people I sought out, I would say. And then sometimes they're, they'll say, Hey, my neighbor's got a few of them. How about that? And, you know, we'll put a load together with sure. amongst two or three. Most of the ones I buy are in Wyoming, Utah, Montana. Try them to buy them north or west of here. I don't buy many from east of here. I would. I just I just haven't. Sure. Sure. They tend to be more expensive. You go eat. Cows add value as they go east. So if I'm driving them east, I am usually can find them cheaper north or west of me. Yeah. You try to be careful about altitude at all, or do you worry much about that? Uh, I think that's the most about getting them north or west of here. I mean, that's... They have, they're usually lower than me, but it's close where if I was buying out of central Nebraska and, and cows out of central Nebraska or a lot of some Montana cows just tend to be way too big. Yeah. I want to buy a 1250 pound cow. I don't want a 1400 pound cow. Yeah. And then we put black Simangus bulls on everything. Part of the reason we use the black is just, they're real flexible. Somebody can buy those heifers and, and breed them if they want. They can, nobody doesn't like black cattle. So Buying the Charlets, you know, if I was terminal crossing with Charlet, one, when I the cows I'm buying in each year wouldn't necessarily fit. And two, you know, you got to have buyers that just want that one thing as opposed to, you know, black just has a lot more appeal. We put that Sim Angus cross in them just to get more growth on them. Uh, and so the end user, most people buy them, run them as yearlings, and so they can just they'll really grow and they'll be big. Well, anything else as you think about the ranch, mental models, things you've adjusted, things you're thinking through that you think would be of interest? I guess the one thing is just to, we, we've tried to really simplify what we're doing so that we can get by with less people, less equipment, and, and really produce what fits, you know, this environment, you know, trying to produce big calves just w wouldn't work very well here. So producing a modest sized calf like us keeps it pretty simple. Uh, we do run a lot of older cows because we buy them and we kind of separate them and manage them right. 
Um, they've treated us well. We try to be conscientious of, you know, what's the return for yearlings? What's the return for selling hay? What's the return for cow-calf? And at least know that we're in the ballpark. The other thing with employees is just, you know, I, I think our our deal, keeping it simple allows time off for employees, which allows for longevity. That That's what keeps people around for us. Yeah. And you mentioned you you don't really have much turnover. I mean, I, there seems to be, from my mind, some I don't know, intellectual capital that goes with something like flood irrigating. I mean, uh, if somebody right. knows how the water moves and knows where things are at, that's a little different. And, you know, it's not like going to turn on a pivot. No, no, that's exactly right. It is. And you get you get better each year. You can do it in less time and do a better job. And so that's why we really don't want turnover. The other thing that that ties to is used to be seasonal people doing that. And we switched to more full-time people doing that because we feel like that's the most important job on the ranch. And so I guess that's, you know, each ranch, each business has something that's the most important. That's the most critical few things. And we try to have our most competent, best full-time people doing the most important jobs and then let, you know, the fill in the seasonal people do the jobs that aren't as critical to to our business. And so flood irrigation for us is the biggest thing. And that's why we've really moved to, you know, full-time people do it. And, and then the part of that is they can see like that intellectual capital or whatever knowledge. It's easier for a full-time person that's ingrained to see what could be if I worked on this or changed this, as opposed to just dealing with what is in front of you. You know, somebody that's that's vested and's here is a lot likely to make improvements that will help over a couple of years, as opposed to you know just somebody that's here this summer. Well, they don't really care that much to change what what it's going to look like next year. Yeah, and also those folks get to see the results of their changes. I mean, I think that, at least from my perspective, if if you start to say, "Hey, what if we did this?" and you try it and you have some wins, it just drives you to want to do that again. Right. Exactly. Yep. Well, James, I really appreciate your time today. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for being willing to share just uh, what you've done there and, and some of the things you've found to work well. I appreciate it. Yeah, sounds good, Aaron. Well, again, I appreciate James joining us today. Again, he's with the TA Ranch located there near Saratoga, Wyoming, and I appreciate his time. So if you have questions around some of the topics that James discussed, such as windrow grazing, we do have resources at the beef.unl.edu website.